2: This podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hey there, and welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I'm your host, Sam Stein.
2: And I'm Jason Chirkus.
1: And Jason, today we're going to talk about Jeb Bush, John Ellis Bush, who, when he launched his run for the White House in 2016, was a juggernaut. You know, this is an establishment figure raised tons of cash, he had connections in the party, and certainly
2: had the wherewithal to run a campaign. But he ended up being a gaff machine. That <laughs> was, like, his reliable thing that he would do every day. 24-7. Screw up. There's an ad-promoting Supergirl. She looked kind
3: of... she looked pretty hot. <laughs> you a Democrat that's for cutting taxes, t- cutting spending, $10? I'll give him a warm kiss. That we're prepared to act in the national security interests of this country to get back in the business of creating a more peaceful world. Please clap.
1: And see, by the end of the campaign, it almost appeared like Donald Trump had established a permanent residency in Jeb's head, paying property taxes and renting
2: out the uh, basement apartment. It was quite the English basement, Sam. Oh yeah, beautiful windows. Donald looked comfortable there. (laughs) (laughs) But,
1: But what the media saw was far different than what Jeb's own staff was observing.
2: Tim Miller, who's our guest on today's podcast and who served as his communications director, grew to deeply appreciate Jeb during the campaign, but he also recognized that his candidate was... It wasn't the gas that were messing about, no, it was something else.
1: No, it wasn't the awkward hoodie, it wasn't the bumbling jokes or the please clap lines, wasn't even the debate performances, or I would say even the presence of Trump really. No. What Tim understood was that Jeb was kind of unfit for the modern Republican Party, and a lot of it, really all of it, was about that last name.
3: Beyond the bluster.
1: Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the
3: motorcade moves on.
0: What happens when the votes are counted?
4: And democracy doesn't go your way.
0: This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast.
2: I'm Sam Stein. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: Actually, I'm Sam Stein, And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. If you hear a clinging sound in the background, Tim, as a condition for coming on this program, a demand that I make him Bloody Mary's. So we're drinking Bloody Mary's, and I think it's like, what, 11.15, which is totally acceptable.
4: Yeah, completely appropriate. Yeah, okay, so cheers. Well, it's like a brunch. It's a brunch. It's post-campaign yeah. world, right? <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's kind of late for drinking. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough.
1: All right, so we're going to talk about the Jeb campaign. And I want to start with... Um, why you decided to sign on board and what was the pitch that he made to you? Cause I know and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, you had, you know, a fair number of offers and opportunities to do things in the cycle and you chose Jeb. So how did that come to be?
4: Um Yeah, well for me in the end it ended up being a no-brainer. Uh not you know, you're gonna make me start off being all nice and soft and bubbly about <laughs> Jeb and how much I love him, but I do. I, I didn't know Jeb at all. Um You know, and I went and talked to, you know, a number of the candidates. Uh, I I wanted to do another campaign. Uh, I had done the Huntsman campaign in 2012. That obviously didn't end as we had hoped. So (laughs) I wanted to uh, try to have a a better result this time. Uh, And, you know, the reality was, uh, to me, there was no real competition in the field. Uh, Jeb was just so clearly
1: the person that was best suited to be president. Yeah, but take us in the room as he talks to you and says, I want you to work for me. What's the pitch he gives you? Sure. Well, I flew to Tallahassee.
4: Um, which is uh, about as expensive and time-consuming as flying to Greece. Uh, it is very <laughs> challenging to get to Tallahassee. It, no took, direct it took 17 hours, and I believe it cost $1,342 uh, to, wow. the, to Jeb Bush's leadership pack. Uh, so I had a lot of time to think about it, and I gained a lot of nerves. I had to get there a day early because of the lengthy travel. I stayed at a beautiful uh, you know, Ramada Inn, um, <laughs> and uh, I woke up, uh, as you do with a big and a big interview day, nervous. And so I woke up maybe about an hour and a half before the interview was maybe at nine. I was up at seven, and I, I at eight o'clock I turned on my Uber uh, to no Uber's. Um, <laughs> I called at you know I started to get in a panic at eight o five. I called a cab company. The cab company said we'll be there in forty five <laughs> minutes <laughs> to an hour. Uh, then I got into an extreme panic and walked out onto the street and just uh, and as I was about to like literally start walking. Um, to to go to this interview, I'm sweating. Another cab pulls into the hotel and looks at me and, and says, "Josh," and I was like, "Yep, you got it, <laughs> he got it, in, got into the cab and took it to go interview Jeb." So apologies to whoever whoever's cab Poor I stole in Tallahassee that day. Um, yeah. and then look, I mean, the the pitch that Jeb made was was honestly pretty straightforward. You know what he offered was, you know, the fact that he had a Vision for the kind of campaign he wanted to run and the kind of president he wanted to be—that was very clear. And you know, without selling out any other candidates, I talked to that wasn't the case for everybody. Um, you know, a lot of people run for president because they want to run for president, and that's really the reason yeah. why. Uh, and you know, what um, uh, that what he asked me was what he recognized in that first interview. Is he <laughs> said that, that you know the things that he was the most worried about about running was you know, the the Dynasty issue and how he could get around it. And and so we spent a lot of time kind of talking about we'll that. We'll
1: get to that. I, but how much of it was, like, just you wanting to hitch your wagon to a winner? I mean, that had to play a role. And he seemed at that point to be the most likely to win.
4: Boy, I thought it was really wide open. I mean, yeah, it seemed like there, there definitely was an element of it that you wanted to be with, you know, somebody that was going to be in the mix. I mean, yeah. part of the problem with Huntsman was, like, we weren't even really in the mix. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't just that we didn't win, but there were huge portions of the campaign where we weren't really even relevant to kind of like the conversation. And so the fact that Jeb was always going to be in the mix um, did play a role. But, yeah, honestly, at that
1: time, like, who knew,
4: right? You know, as I was talking with people,
1: People like you probably envision, you know, standing behind that, lectern at the White House <laughs> I briefing do, room. I do not. And you're like, I, wanna, I want the best opportunity to be there, right?
4: No, I told Michael Steele with an E, not Michael this Steele is, that you had on the show. This is John
1: Boehner's former president. Yeah, press he director.
4: was much better suited for sitting behind the okay. lectern, as you'll hear over the next... However long this podcast ends up being after being cut, I'm not very well-suited to the messaging (laughs) discipline that would be required. And I also, you won't know this because you can't see my face, but I'm a horrendous poker player. (laughs) You know exactly what I'm thinking about you when you ask me a question. If you ask a stupid question, you know. So those are not skills well-suited. But look, honestly, it mattered that he was that I thought that he had a good chance to win. But that being said, it was at the beginning of this race, it was really much more wide open than people realize.
1: There seemed to be also uh, from a strategic standpoint, this idea that you were going to like overwhelm the competition really early on, right? You're going to raise a ton of money. You're getting all these endorsements. You're not going to let the, any of the candidates even, you know, get into the race. You're going to try to elbow them out. And to a certain extent, that's kind of like a double-edged sword, right? I mean, like you're all, you're inevitable on one hand, but then you have like a huge target on your back. And when those candidates do enter the race, suddenly you're the establishment guy that they're trying mm-hmm. to pick off.
4: Well, look, uh, yes, that's true that there's a pluses and minuses that go to with that. On the other hand, we're, we were a Bush and his name is Jeb Bush. So we were going to have the target on our back regardless Like this idea that you know he was going to be able to kind of like hide in the weeds until <laughs> January and have this late surge as, you know, George Bush's brother and son was, uh, would probably not have been uh, a strategy that was realistic. The, the
1: idea here is that, you know, with the with last name Bush, there are certain limitations on what type of candidate you can be. I mean, I think that's sort of the general theme. And so I guess the, sure. the question I have is, did you ever have a serious discussion in the campaign about changing his last name? maybe like go go like, with Lincoln or my something my mother
4: my mother suggested <laughs> could could he go take his wife's name you um, oh. know, would appeal to women and Hispanics. You know, oh. uh, Jeb you, Garnica, the Gallo. <laughs> um, did I don't you bring know. I did not raise that idea with him. I thought it was, you know, I thought my mother brought kind of a, good a nice stuff.
1: outsider point of view there. Yeah, but he uh, hired I, the wrong person in the family. I don't know that that
4: would have. Uh, I don't know that that you know. Maybe we could have survived that all without right, some fine. mockery. But
1: what? Do, okay, and then all, all seriousness though. But like, what were the early conversations about how to handle the legacy issue?
4: I, I think that. Um, um, you know the the initial case. I'm trying to put my head back in the space of, of whatever March of 2015. But you know the initial idea was that we needed to you know introduce Jeb as Jeb and tell tell, and tell Jeb's story, right? And so I, I think we got criticized a lot during the campaign about kind of talking about the past, right? Not talking enough about the future, talking about his time as governor in the um in in Florida. But you know we felt like we needed to do that to. Um, you know as is, is to tell the Jeb story to make a unique case for Jeb um, you know another thing that we did and we were, were mindful of is is to not run a campaign that seemed entitled right and I think that the what what part of the tension about what you were talking about earlier, Sam, with this sort of shock and awe mm-hmm. you know effort is that there were elements of that that did kind you know yeah, come like off the that way is yours, you yeah know, there yeah. I, and 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 that was never you know, really kind of intentional what we said, but I, I think it did send off that message. But, you know, on the flip side, you know, it's not like we weren't going to try to raise as much money and get <laughs> as many endorsements as we could, right? But I, And mean, that's sort of, uh, you know, uh, what, what the whole uh, object of these campaigns. But, you know, if you looked at the types of events we did and the type of, you know, they were not... You know, really big, well-produced affairs, right? You know, Jeb was really easy to get to. Uh, you know, if you came out on the road with him and you were a reporter or a human, uh, you could ask him. You could ask him a question very easily. We did kind of self-deprecating videos at the start, which were really funny. And there's a thing called Shark NATO. And I think I see Ann Coulter as Vice President of the United States. It's kind of weird. And there's sharks coming out of the sky people are getting killed the white house is being collapsed and made the jeb ca- seem human and then you know sort of at the, towards the end of the campaign <laughs> uh, maybe didn't look had a different kind of feel to them uh, uh, but was that um, was
2: that all by design
4: yeah no absolutely i mean we we were c- very conscious of the fact that you know we did not want this to seem in any way like a rose garden kind of campaign that jeb needed to you know, in some ways humble, you know, himself um, to, to demonstrate to voters that he was going to go out and earn it, uh, in addition to, you know, kind of t- telling, you know, this Jeb story and what was different about his life and his life experience than, than, his, than his brother and his dad.
1: But and it wasn't just the last name, right? I mean, like, the Iraq war became the first big sort of policy, policy problem yeah. that you faced.
3: Knowing what we know now, would you have authorized the invasion?
4: I would have. And so so would have Hillary Clinton. Just it's still is kind of unclear like I th- either he he with kind of misheard the question or I think that what really happened was he knew what like kind of what question was coming and he had his talking points ready and so he didn't hear the exact way that she phrased it. But the fact that he said I would right away kind of led to a, you know, media frenzy about whether knowing what we know now, you know, he would go back into Iraq uh, which then kind of led to a tortured like three or four days where we had to you know talk about what that me- meant in every different iteration of um, uh, you know what you know about how he felt about the Iraq war and I, and I think that to your, to your point that sort of encapsulates you know kind of the issue is that we had to talk about that in, in, in depth. In, in a detail that nobody else had to, right? Like, no. Marco was never asked, you know, any Well, sort everyone of...
1: was asked after that. Right. But it was like a w- two-minute story, and they <laughs> had... Because he had gone first, they all were able to,
2: like, tailor their answers. And it, they didn't have the complication of their brother. Correct. And did... I mean, would you guys prepare for that question ahead of time? Do yes. you guys know that... Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean,
4: what he said was... Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the transcript, but if you look at what he said outside of the you know the exact way that making Kelly framed the question it, it, what he said was exactly what you know he had prepared to say and what he end, and what he ended up saying which was basically obviously there were mistakes you know there were th- you know the things there were elements of the strategy that didn't go well sure. but the surge worked but how and,
1: do you i mean when you're behind the scenes and you're handling communication strategy sure. walk us through how you come to a realization that an answer like that is a problem like did you know in the moment
4: oh yeah well it was taped Oh okay. yeah, it was taped earlier in the day at Liberty. So we knew in the moment and I, you know, we I called Megan and I think we tried to decide at, at that time we tried to decide what um you know, whether we needed to correct it before, like, the, it aired, you know, or, uh, you know, and what we sort of had decided was that, you know, maybe Megan could kind of explain it. So we knew it was a problem. And then, and now but you did can... Did you s-
1: recognize how big a problem? No,
4: no, no. And and that, I think that's why we didn't correct it in the show, right? Yeah. And that's why we didn't correct was, it in the show, Megan, because... When,
2: when you guys called Megan Kelly, was she open to help it? Like she understood. I mean, she agreed. I, you know, like,
4: she... That's, that's how she, you know, how she interpreted his answer was exactly how he intended it, which was basically to say... Uh, not I would go into Iraq knowing everything that I know now but but yeah. but I think that on you know on balance going into Iraq was good, and there were mistakes, and here are the different things we should have done here are the things we should have done differently, so you know the issue was then because he put himself in that situation where he had said, I would, then, you know, he needed to go out and explicitly say, I wouldn't, yeah. right? And then yeah. that goes to my point, where none of the other candidates ever really had to say no. that, like, I wouldn't. And so so in the series of interviews after, I think we did Hannity, and then I, I forget what he did after that.
2: It, it's sort of, a, you're bringing up, a, like, an interesting problem. Like, you started out wanting to run kind of a humble campaign. You wanted to earn it. You staged events that were sort of smart. For the
1: record, Tim's taking a massive gulp <laughs> of Bloody Mary well, after I think this. More Iraq time. questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, so uh, we have photos of you Can we protesting. talk about Chertoff? <laughs>
1: Katrina's next, don't worry.
2: But uh, but you, you have this tension where you want to run sort of a humble campaign. You want to be accessible. You want to do events where he's has to earn it. He's meeting voters. He's not flying into different airport hangars and then leaving. Um, and then he's getting questions about, you know, the legacy questions, all these issues around the Iraq war, and they're more complicated than if, say, Rubio got them. Mm-hmm. that seemed to be an overriding tension throughout the race. Was this his desire to be, to just run his jab, and then these other questions? Uh,
4: Yeah, I mean, look, and um, there there were some things, and this is going back to our first conversation, that, you know, there were some advantages to it, right? Like, we got attention in a way that other candidates didn't, and so what we tried to do was, you know, use that to our advantage and kind of (coughs) ride that, you know, ride that wave. I mean, much more at the beginning of the campaign, you know, any time we did anything... Um, you know, it garnered a lot more media coverage, and that's why I think we felt at the start something that kind of looks obviously wrong in retrospect was that we could create a Jeb versus Trump binary um, because, in kind of the media environment, we were able to do that because we were the only people they're interested in talking to. So, you know, that's how we tried to turn that um, that tension into a positive. But it was obviously, you know, you know, the negative side was are pretty obvious.
1: Was one of the problems um, that you had that was talked about? in the moment i think uh, ben smith for, among others was writing about this that he had been off the trail so long and hadn't really been involved in electoral politics that he had you know i guess for lack of a better word that he was a little rusty
4: yeah i mean look ben ben's article and i think other people wrote this were basically that you know he he had run his last campaign in 2002 yeah. you know so this was so we're talking
1: like 13 years
4: pre twitter Far pre Twitter, <laughs> pre YouTube, pre blogs. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there was still, you know, there was, ca- the, the, there was cable, but, um, uh, you know, was kind of, yeah. Was MySpace
2: routed right no I just made that up. I have
1: no idea. I have no idea. <laughs>
2: um, I'm trying to remember what. how old was was. Maybe the first MySpace page. <laughs> the first, first popular yeah, yeah. used MySpace in a very innovative um, way. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I'm sure he did. No, there, he there were kind songs. of elements
4: of this <laughs> that we wanted to talk about his because he was kind of, they called him the e governor and he was kind of innovative in this regard and he was the first, he was the First state that had like a website where you could file your complaints or <laughs> issues onto the website. Florida's the first state to do this, but uh, all of the examples we came up with seemed kind of ridiculous and ret- <laughs> antiquated in retrospect, <laughs> so we weren't able to, to use that. So in that sense, you know, I think Ben was right. I uh, look, I think there were two elements to it. One is uh, he was very easy it was very easy to kind of get up to speed on the tools of the campaign. Like none of this stuff is rocket science, right? So that was less the issue as I do feel like Marco and Ted and, you know, even people who didn't do as well, like Bobby Jindal and Walker, you know, they sort of uh, grew up in this kind of media environment where uh, uh, they'd been burned before. And they'd been bitten by, you know, this sort of 24-hour media environment where, you know, if Jeb... You know, kind of made a gaffe or whatever back in two thousand two. Like Adam Smith wrote a story for the Tampa Bay Times the next day, <laughs> and then it was over, right? So he was able to kind of weather those, and and he didn't kind of build up that kind of alligator skin that Marco has. So, did it did, shock him when he? No, I don't know. No, he didn't. It didn't phase him at all because he didn't uh, really read it. You know, I mean, he didn't. So then, what uh, did he, he try to? It, well, so this is it. Mattered in the sense of. You know, I think that if you look at Marco or Ted or some of these other guys, for better or worse, they had built up a um, uh, an ability to to deal to deal with this by being boring, you know, by being by you know repeating the same things over and over again. Like this is something that Jeb didn't like to do, and so you know that that came naturally to Marco. He was schooled in it. He came up in 2010, and to, in the end, it ended up kind of hurting him.
1: What was the first inclination that Mr. Donald J. Trump was going to be a force to be reckoned with?
4: Um, for for us, for Jeb, it happened, I think, earlier than for everybody else because uh, he was relentless in the way that he was attacking Jeb, and he was doing it in a way that was outside of, you know, political norms, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> just the types of attacks Vicious. that he was yeah, <laughs> is delivering, uh, then the got guy, you guys interested, right? Um, uh, not you two necessarily in particular, but no, the media. I was interested. You were yeah, interested, yeah, interested too, interested, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, look, I think that there was a sense for us, and, and this was a much shorter people period than people realize at the start. Where, and I, and I will, you know, raise my hand guilty as charged on this. Where I thought that the right thing to do is ignore him. You know that this was that he this was a joke. He was trying to get a lot of attention. That if we get down in the mud with him, that Um, you know, we're never going to get out and we're going to spend every day talking about them. Um,
1: was there someone on your team that had the opposite viewpoint?
4: Yeah. Well, there, yes, there were people right from the start, you know, but this period of time is like, we're literally talking three weeks where this sort of discussion was happening. And then, and then, um, you know, it became, I think, universally clear that we had to respond to him when one, this was the 4th of July weekend. He said that Jeb, um, uh, was for immigration reform because his wife was a Mexican, Yeah. Right. And so you know you can't let kind of an attack on your wife go by, uh, you know, for uh, for political reasons, but also just kind of moral reasons. You have to stand up for your wife. Uh, And then it was the next week, I believe, was the state fair, and he lands at the state fair in Iowa, and he has this huge press conference, and the whole press conference is about Jeb, and he like you know they ask him about you know, you know, whatever healthcare policy. And he'd say, you know, well, Jeb's in the pocket of the lobbyists and the, and the you know, D.C. politicians. And, you know, Jeb's just in the big donors pockets and he's low energy and his wife's a Mexican. And I just I remember sitting there in my apartment this was on a weekend um, watching, you know, the live stream of it and thinking, OK, like this is like we can't just say nothing. Right. Like this the idea that we are going to ignore him and he's going to go away. Uh, was not really it was not really a choice for us, and it was the next week in New Hampshire where Jeb, uh, you know, went out and and started punching back.
1: Was it more than just uh, a strategic consideration? Was it an emotional consideration? Were you like, this guy's a fucking asshole? Like, I can't believe he's doing this, and I really, really, really want to hit back at him.
4: Um no no strategic <laughs> consideration <laughs> I mean he is an asshole that's true sure. um but I, there was not an emotional no. kind of
2: well, I just to, feel like those, was, maybe there was for fine. somebody I'm just curious like what was Jeb's initial reaction to Trump and what was his feeling where did he come down on the debate in, I, I, early I, I
4: on? yeah I think initially he was on the side of you know we, I can't spend every you know my whole campaign is going to be consumed by talking about Trump right if I start responding to every every time he says something crazy about me. You know, I'm never going to talk about anything else. And so, you know, I think that Jeb, um, you know, landed there at the start. Um, But, you know, I think when his wife was attacked, he definitely felt compelled to to respond. (laughs) To subject my wife into the middle of a raucous political
3: conversation was completely inappropriate. And I hope you apologize for that, Donald.
1: What do you think of the low energy moniker?
4: Uh, What did Jeb think about it? Jeb just didn't get it. You're right. I mean, he he was just like, this is ridiculous. Like, this guy, like, sits around his New York high-rise in his pajamas, like, eating hamburgers, and, like, flies in and does one event where he calls me low energy, and then he flies home and sends tweets. I mean, like, he he, is—Trump is low energy, whereas Jeb, on the other hand, was living a life of, like, 20-hour days, you know, where he's— you know, sending me emails at four in the morning and sending me emails at midnight, right? And and he's out there raising money doing three or four events a day. So I, I just, I don't know that it even clicked with him.
1: We've talked to a lot of people uh, for this podcast who universally say that uh, donors will come up during the course of a campaign. And because they've given money, assume that they get to offer bits of campaign advice. And so I'm assuming that there were a number of donors in the party that came to you guys with bits of a campaign advice about how to handle Donald Trump. What was the worst piece of advice?
4: And we could have had probably 19 full-time staffers dedicated just to the donor advice. <laughs> yeah, um, right. and my, but while I, while I try to think about the worst piece of advice, um, the Jeb. something to note about Jeb is that the Jeb at Jeb.org email, he reads... Right, okay. he still reads, and he responds to you know regular people. Well, like that's how that, we should
1: have tried to book him. Yeah,
4: that's, okay. that is exactly yeah. how you should have tried <laughs> to book him. And so he was getting the advice directly from directly oh God. from <laughs> these donors. And I would sit next to him in the car, and he would read me like some some of the advice. And what and was he was the getting, gist? It was uh, it was honestly sartorial was the was the biggest piece of advice. Like these donors have a lot of thoughts about, like, his cable TV look. Donors are obsessed with cable TV. The most feedback we got was with regards to cable TV. Why aren't you on enough? Uh, when you are on, you know. Why is he not wearing a suit coat rather than a sweater? <laughs> Can he get a new suit coat jacket? Um, is that why so, the
1: glasses were taken off at some point? Were they upset with that?
4: Uh, the, 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 I think the campaign. Uh, he looks better without glasses. Right, Did you not think so? That's a,
1: So the the, the, what the, g-
4: the, glass, like, the yeah. glasses were taken off because they were really like foggy one day. Okay, uh, like really foggy, and so he he couldn't see, and he kind of took them off to to clean them, and I. And I I was standing there with him. I just said, "Hey, just leave him off. Like it's a cable interview. You don't ha- need to be able to see, right?" I mean, because his eyesight was terrible. So you're just looking into the blank camera. You uh, kind of want to see just yeah. in case. You a know? Satellite TV. I net? don't know. If, yeah.
1: Anyways, <laughs> it's surprising to me that so the donors. I guess it's not surprising, but do they realize how small the universe of cable news watchers are? As someone who goes on cable news, like it's my it's my mom basically.
4: Uh, yeah, no, they do not realize it. And as the communications director, uh, while I'm grateful for all of the financial support we received from across the country to any donors who are listening to Candidate Confessional, uh, I would probably say eighty to ninety percent of the feedback I got directly or through uh through Jeb was related to cable news. I don't just I think it's because it's just on in their offices That's they all day. Do,
2: yeah. So do they have like suit recommendations or ties or Yes, all really. So yes. they're like they should, he should be wearing a red tie. Uh, yes, yes. We got
4: specific feedback about a. Bank suits. red ties. <laughs> Not, I don't know about brands. We okay. did get specific feedback about colors and and, and about um, you know whether he should be in studio or on satellite. And we we did, we received a and then his his mien when he was on uh, cable TV. Most most of the uh, most of the feedback was related to that. I'd have to go back and. And I wish you would have asked me this last night so I could have thought about it because we got some really bad advice, but I can't think of anything funny right now.
2: Okay. Um, do you regret not
4: taking some bad <laughs> advice on the suit choices? Or I do not. Okay. okay. okay.
1: Elevating this a little bit because I kind of
4: regret taking their advice a little too much. Honestly, with regards to like there is increased pressure to put people on TV because you hear about it so much. And you know, I thought I I I wanted to blast out the email of the Rick Santorum surrogate hit on Marco Rubio to all of our donors who wanted us to have you know the biggest complaint about me was that we did not have surrogates on MSNBC. You're going to need to
1: explain. So the Rick Santorum surrogate hit was when he was asked to name a Marco Rubio accomplishment, couldn't come up with one.
4: And then they Rubio
1: has spent three days talking about how <laughs> he didn't like, have hey, any accomplishments. You could have told you, do at that point, see the downsides. Of right. The, and it was like uh, a excitement.
4: daytime MSNBC hit. There were no Republican primary
1: voters that was, watching. That was a pretty bad one. Um, to elevate this a little bit, though, it does seem right. like one of the uh, big problems... you have to elevate it? A little bit. One of the big problems, it does seem, was there a huge collective action problem, right? Like, everyone wanted to be the last guy standing against Trump. And that meant that they didn't want to be the first guy to take him on one-on-one. Until... Your boss did. But, I mean, there were a few people before him, but your boss basically no, there did aren't. it. Rick Perry.
4: We were doing it before okay. Rick Perry. Okay,
1: Was there ever a time where the campaigns tried to have back-channel conversations at all to try to come up with some sort of comprehensive anti-Trump strategy?
4: The honest answer is that the back-channel conversations were mostly about beating one another, right? I, I, mean, I think that for the longest time, everybody... I felt exactly how you just said, that the best play for each individual candidate, there's a collective action issue, each individual candidate's best play was to be the last person standing against Trump. And I thought Jeb, for example... Was, was basically a shield for some of these guys on the debate stage. You know, and, and I understand it. If
1: I was sitting in a human shield, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, he was a
4: human shield, right. I was if I was sitting in the debate prep for any of the other candidates, I can't imagine that I would have been suggesting them, you know what you need to do is throw some punches at Donald Trump. You know, no, like let Jeb handle it. You know, he's the one who's taken all the incoming. Um, and you saw what Happened. the United you're States tough, Jeff, by insulting Jeff, yeah? your way to well, the Let's president see, I'm seat. at
3: 42 and you're at 3, so Doesn't so far matter. I'm doing better. Doesn't matter. So far I'm doing better. You know, you started off over here, Jeff. You're moving over further and further.
2: Do other campaigns thank you after the debates?
4: No, <laughs> no, we got no thanks. We got no recognition. All, you know, all we got were, we got did get a lot of uptick in Twitter trolls. Um, but no, we got no recognition and, and at all, did, and these other guys didn't do it do, do anything. And here is where the strategic mistake happened uh, is of the other campaigns, in my opinion, is when Jeb really went at Trump in I think it was the November debate. Um, and, and he went at Trump about, uh, how he thought Hillary would be a good secretary of state. And then we did ads on it. You remember the super PAC ad was like, Jeb's the only one taking on Trump. The reason why we did that was from a process standpoint, we felt like it had reached the point where Trump had such a lead that all the other candidates were going to realize you could get free media from attacking Trump and there was going to be a pile on effect. And so, you know, we were saying internally, we need to go out and say this, like, you know, Jeb might as well, if he's taken all the bruises, he might as well get credit for being the one who's. Taking on trump um, and I so at that point, that was about Thanksgiving. I thought that that we need to take credit for it now because it was coming from all the other guys it didn 't come again for three months, and I think that really damaged you know Marco. I do not think that the problem for Marco was that you know he made the hands attacker that it was childish I, I I thought that was overblown i, I The issue was that it wasn 't credible he they, they These guys had spent nine months, and Cruz is running into that now they'd spent nine months. You know, sucking up to him, and now all of a sudden, you know, he's the worst person ever. There's a lack of credibility that comes with that attack, and so I, I do think the other guys needed to. I mean, it's a uh, most obvious thing ever; they need to do it earlier.
2: Yeah. What was the strategy going into the debates? How to attack Trump? I mean, we talked to Newt Gingrich, and he thought that debating Trump was a really, really impossible. He compared it to the bear and revenant.
3: When you hit him, he devours you. He can't help himself, and so. He creates an environment unlike anything I've ever seen.
2: Like he thought it was really tough, and we asked him, like, "Would you attack Trump?" And he said, "No, I'd hope the other guys would do it." Exactly. Well, and I think the other. We had no choice.
4: So, you know, I, I think while Jeb gets credit for doing it, uh, at the same point, like Trump was going to attack us regardless. So Jeb's only other choice was to try to take the high road, and I, you know, I, I don't think that was really viable. Our view on attacking Trump, I think if you is, you should want, if you watched the debates as they unfolded was more that you had to act more like Trump. You know Jeb. I mean, Jeb was never going to act like Trump. You know, because their personalities are so different. But just in the sense of talking over him, you have to talk yeah, over him to get the last word. There you have was to one keep debate where Trump
1: uh, complimented him being high energy. I believe in one debate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And
4: you have to keep pushing back, keep interrupting him, keep getting the last word. I think there was one debate where Jeb was like, "Ah, oh, taste of your own medicine." When yeah. like Donald was but, complaining about Jeb interrupting him, and I, I th- that was the best. You know, the strategy that we came up with.
1: The Obama campaign would often talk about this uh, concept of being in the barrel, right? Which is essentially, if I'm defining it right, you're in a terrible news cycle and it's just endless and there's no apparent way out and whatever you do or try to do is not going to help. And I think it's fair to say that Jeb had that same thing too. So from the perspective of someone who's running his communications, what's that like?
4: Yeah, our version. What my version of the barrel is, I call it the angry mom syndrome. (laughs) Where you know, if you get in trouble at school when you're in fifth grade, and you come home, and your mom is just angry, and she says, "I can't believe you did that," and there's nothing you can say. There's (laughs) nothing you can say. You can try every possible answer, and but you're just you're in you're in the barrel with the mom. And so we we were that way with the press. Where I kind of referenced this earlier, where we had these, you know, kind of fun. You know uh, videos showing showing jeb 's personal side where at the beginning of the campaign that was kind of like oh that 's nice it's different it's it 's kind of jeb behind the scenes, but then when our poll numbers were at four percent, all of a sudden the self deprecating humor became like sad. And there was a the ethos. Like, right? So, the hoodie thing is a good I example. understand. And people who are not watching the podcast should go watch the hoodie video. It was just, we thought it was funny. Jeb was putting on a hoodie. He put it on completely the wrong way. It was like he'd never put on a hoodie before. <laughs> and Do you think people was, were confused? They thought, like, he just doesn't know how to put on a hoodie. Well, right. Well, so when it initially came out, there were a series of videos like that that people thought were funny. So, you did Lucia Graves work for Huffington Post? She did. Former so, Huff yeah. Post, yeah. Lucia Graves. Yeah. She, so, she writes an article literally nine months after the hoodie thing came out. I think she'd just seen it because it had regained virality on Twitter. And she wrote this really long article about all these sad videos on our website (laughs) that showed poor Jeb. And I I, I called her and I was like, Lucia, we put these videos out in June, right? Like people (laughs) liked them. Like you just missed it, right? But I mean, that's a stupid example of what it's like to be in the barrel, but it just shows that everything is seen by the press through the light of your poll numbers. And so, you know, the, the example at the end, I think the best example was please clap. Right. Where Jeb was at an event in New Hampshire and, you know, he goes on this really kind of long, wonky answer about policy. And at the very end of the thing, like two people in the front, like clapped really enthusiastically. And he kind of chuckles and look at him and it's like, no, go ahead, please. You know, please clap. And and, you know, that was grabbed on Vine by one of the embeds that were there and and it was cut down to just the please clap part and it was seen as like encapsulating you know the sad part of this campaign that you had to beg for clapping now look at imagine if trump had done that on the other hand at the leading in the polls and you know and trump's up there he's like believe me please clap believe me please and you know like people would think it's funny right and so you know all all these little things that you do they they all get seen through the light of your poll numbers and so how do you uh, break out of that Get better poll numbers. (laughs) I mean, honestly, there was no way. But the things
1: you do get made fun of, which make your poll numbers worse. Right.
4: It was a self – you know, it was a a – we were in the death spiral, which is kind of the other version of that. A guy on the Rubio campaign texted me um, about four days after Marco Roboto.
3: David, what was Rubio doing? Coming back to that answer – Four times, five times, I think, in that exchange with Chris Christopher. and was like, I just, yeah, I it's it so was- hard. Like, we can't yeah. do
4: anything without getting insulted. And I, I've texted him. I said, Well, welcome to since the Fourth of <laughs> July for me. Like, this has been four days for you guys. Uh, you know, kind of. He's like, you guys put can't, on your big boy pants here. You guys um, can't deal with like two dudes in cardboard <laughs> robot outfits. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, look. I, but we thought the best way, for our perspective, out of it was to. Um, Uh, To take on Trump in the debates, and and we thought the only possible way out of it was to get the better of him. And we have, we we, didn't, yeah, we didn't. But but uh, maybe there's somebody out there in Huffington Post podcast land that could come up with a better idea. But that was
1: the best. Well, was there was there an individual low point in that process?
4: Um, Well, for me, the low point was probably um, when I, I felt like. Uh, when it really was clear for me that it was going to be tough for Jeb to win was uh, I was at my brother's bachelor party in New Orleans. I took two days off the campaign trail and we had gone in the field with a poll and i'd purposely not looked at it like over the course of the bachelor party because i didn't want to know and there was one question in the poll that that i was really interested in what the result was going to be and the question was what do you like least about jeb bush and you know it was trying to get the sense of how can we sort of turn turn these folks and so with a huge hangover at you know on sunday morning knowing i had to fly back to miami <laughs> i looked down at the poll and i scrolled just to that question to see what the result was over 70% of voters um, said what they leaked, least liked about Jeb was something related to Bush or something related to nerdy, low energy, doesn't feel tough enough. And so to me, like all the other stuff that everybody talked about, the immigration or Common Core or the gaffes, or 2%, none of that mattered at all. Our whole issue was related to dynasty or, you know, this sort of this tough factor, if you will. And and none of that, neither of those
1: things were fixable. And when was this poll taken, roughly? October. It was
4: mid-October. So, you know, this is about four months out. And I just remember looking at that and, and thinking, I don't know how we're going to fix this.
1: That's four months out. And you basically have a fatalism about the campaign with months to go. So, I mean, maybe not fatalism. That might be a little off, but you yeah. know it's not going to go well, as you admitted. Yeah. How do you, as a staffer, get up every day and like get into work and have that hanging over your head?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's tough in the office, in particular. Um, for it was, it's better on the road. Um, it was for me, at least. I, maybe everybody kind of deals with this stuff differently. Um, but you know, especially when you're in New Hampshire, I, you know, I think there's a way that you sort of. Kind of you know, buy into the sort of mystique here, right and and just everybody, talk to enough voters yeah, you talk to enough, enough voters, homes. everybody knows you yeah. you know when you're walking around New Hampshire, so there's kind of a positive feeling on the ground with real people that does not exist sort of in the chattering class when you're when your poll numbers are that low um, the office the office vibe is a little bit tougher, so I mean you have to be you have to be mindful of that i mean i I, I will admit I had it was probably not too long after that that I had, you know, one of the younger staffers, you know, say to me on the campaign, like, like uh, you need to be mindful of how you're kind of carrying yourself around here, right? Because everybody looks to, you know, and these campaigns are full of young people. I mean, I'm 34, and, like, I was, like, the old guy, right? And yeah. so, like they're, like, they're looking to me for how I act. And I really appreciated him saying that because I, like, went in when I was in the office every day with, with the idea of, all right, let's go kick these guys' ass. And I think the best way to combat... You know that sort of dark feeling is to go out there and throw punches. I could I could care less about the insults that Donald Trump gives to
3: me. It's blood sport for him, he enjoys it, and I'm glad he's happy about it. He but I, have thick 22 and and tired, in I am sick and about. tired of him going after my family. My dad is the greatest
4: man alive in my mind. And while, while I thought that his best moment of the whole campaign, in my opinion, um, Jeb's best moment was when he um, went at Trump for um, for attacking the disabled reporter, you know. And I thought that we really, you know, that was a good week for the campaign because you felt a lot. We had people coming to the events saying, you know, I was. I, I, we turned it into an ad, you know. I saw that ad on TV, and I was hoping that somebody'd stand up to this guy. Like that's so low, you know, um, for him to insult somebody for their disability. And we had a dude in South Carolina, Tim Dyer. Who owned a barbecue shop who called the campaign and was like, "Come down to the barbecue shop we ho- they, we hosted an awesome event in his uh, you know uh, in his in his barbecue restaurant in, in kind of rural South Carolina. The place was packed, and he gave a really emotional speech. He had a kid uh, who had cerebral palsy kind of before yeah. he introduced Jeb, and so you know I think that sort of addresses both your questions right we felt like a that was the way to try to get at the toughness thing is to come at Trump from different ways and show strength and be, you know, it also helps with the morale,
1: right? Yeah. But then I guess the other question that is related to those poll numbers, um, is that like, you know, we, we sort of think of campaigns as like these series of very strategic events that, you know, you make decisions and then maybe, you know, that'll change the complexion of the race. If you just sent this tweet or you just did different in this debate moment, but what those poll numbers suggest to me is that, by and large, you know, the landscape is pretty set on these things, and there's not much that campaigns can actually do to change fundamentals in a race. So, to sum it up, is all this kind of bullshit? Uh,
4: nothing matters. Nothing, actually, nothing matters. matters. Yeah, I mean, but um, seriously, I like, have I have two I have two interesting things on this, if you will allow me. One sure. is um, I, I I think that. Um, uh, you know, for Jeb in particular, and that's why I'm kind of hesitant to when you ask me, you know, what what staffer said this and what staffer said that. For us in particular in this campaign, it really didn't matter. Uh, you know, and if you look at those numbers, you know, in one of the first postmortems, there was an anonymous staffer in Politico who said, you know, I had suggested in August. That we, that Jeb challenged Trump to a debate on O'Reilly where we take on the anchor baby issue and the low energy issue head on on O'Reilly in August. And I, I just remember reading this and just laughing, right? And I called, I don't know, I, don't, I still don't know who said it, but I called Sally Bradshaw, who's his chief advisor, and Danny. I said we need to tell people to stop saying this, because this is ridiculous on its face. Like the a the idea that that, that the campaign trajectory would have changed based on one O'Reilly <laughs> interview in August. I, I mean, just the fact that somebody thought that that was going to be the difference, I think, just shows how ridiculous it is, right? Mm-hmm. The, to think that one or two tactical decisions would have made a difference. And you know, I got a and one of the nice calls I got after the campaign was for Joe Lockhart, who was the press secretary for Bill Clinton. And uh, I'd worked for him at a at a PR firm in town, and he said to me, I hope you feel okay, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I worked on four presidential campaigns, three losers, uh, Mondale, Dukakis, Clinton won, and then Kerry. And he said, on Mondale and Dukakis, I finally realized after a couple of weeks that there was no sense being sad about this because I worked for guys that I respected, and there was nothing I could have done. You know, there wasn't any strategic decision that Joe Lockhart could have done that would have made Michael Dukakis the president. He said the carry one was the tough one for me. You know, I spent, and he said he spent a long time thinking about, is there anything we could have done? Like that race was so close. So I, I think that, that I'm, I tell that story because I think that Joe was exactly right. Uh, you know, that there are, strategic decisions that matter. It's not like nothing matters. There's certain things. um, I mean, and who knows with this Cruz and Trump thing, if we end up going to a delegate fight, which I expect, you know, maybe there really were, uh, looking back on it, very important strategic decisions happening in the next two months in this delegate battle that made the difference between Trump and Cruz. Um, But for us, you know, 11 percent in New Hampshire, 8 percent in South Carolina. I, I just I don't know that any of those things would have been the difference maker.
2: How long did it take you to recover after the
1: Oh yeah, you're not fully recovered.
2: I
4: I didn't have a chance to recover. I spent a beautiful day, one beautiful 24 hours in <laughs> Miami where I went to the beach alone. I started to read a book. I've not read a book in like 18 months. I've read the first three chapters of a book and laid and laid on the beach for like eight hours. Which Ann Rand book was that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, Sarah Palin's book. Um, <laughs> and then we... Uh, it was uh, Huckabee. Uh, <laughs>
2: God, Guns, guns gravy. and Gravy. Yeah. What, what, gravy. What, book, what book was it? Though? I'm curious.
4: I don't, I guess, uh, don't this remember. is the point. I started to read 20 pages of it, and then I, sta- I stopped. I can pull it up on my Kindle right now, but uh, this is getting to where we're going in the story. Then I went to the University of Miami basketball game, a big basketball fan. I went alone. I thought about asking if a campaign person wanted to come with me. I decided I didn't want to talk about the campaign. I sat alone on the beach. I sat alone at the basketball game, and then um, Cried. I, w- I, I did not <laughs> cry. I woke up the next morning feeling fantastic. Then the next day, I went out with all the campaign kids. We got hammered till five in the morning at eight thirty in the morning. I got a phone call from the anti Trump Super PAC guys who asked me to come help them, which is what I'm doing now, our principals pack putting in a plug for my current employer uh, and I felt like um number one, it was the right thing to do was to go and you know fight Donald Trump and keep him from taking over this party. and number two, I don't know if there's ever this it might be my life peak was the three week period where I was paid to sit by the pool in Miami. And send mean tweets at Donald Trump and go and do television hits where I said or I attacked Donald Trump on cable TV. um, You not only did television hits
1: though, you uh, actually uh, got in his face at a post debate moment, I recall. Were you nervous about that? Or was Twice. Uh, twice. Twice I, twice nice, I nice, got nice, to nice. say that debate. Uh,
4: no, after the first debate, uh, or uh, Jeb's last debate, which I thought Jeb got the better of him, um, when Trump said that he would stood by his comments that George W. Bush should be impeached, and he stood by his comments that he felt like Vladimir Putin is a great leader. Remember
1: how we thought that was going to end Trump's candidacy? Yeah, yeah. who knows,
4: who yeah. knows. <laughs> I followed Trump around the, the, the uh, spin room, and every interview he did, I walked right up after him and just said, like, Uh, Did he reiterate his support for George W. Bush's impeachment? And did he continue (laughs) to suck up to Vladimir Putin? Um, And, and, you know, kind of Corey Lewandowski and his team sort of ended up boxing me out. Um, No, I'm fine. No bruises. Um, And then at the next debate, I saw Trump walking by. This is when I'm with the anti-Trump group, not with Jeb anymore. Um, And we had an altercation where I asked him, Uh, if if he was wearing a Trump tie and if I could see where it was made and then he walked three steps turned around, recognized me from cable news because Trump does watch cable news all the time. Sam's mom, Trump, and, <laughs> and dozens of other people watch daytime cable news. So he recognized me from cable news, and so he started shouting at me. I ruined Jeb's campaign. Then I was shouted at him about how he ruined Trump meets, and we kind of had a, a like a back and forth uh, period uh, of about I don't know, uh, forty five seconds.
2: Do you still talk to Jeb? And how's he doing?
4: He's doing great. Um, I you know, like I said, I think that he. Um, Uh, You learn a lot about candidates when they lose. I've been on a number of losing campaigns. Uh, Some of them uh, really get angry. Some kind of lash out and blame others. Uh, Jeb was really very much at peace with the campaign that he ran. Um, So he he moved back to Coral Gables. Uh, Gets to spend time with his wife. That's a good life. I saw him. uh, He had just been off the golf course uh, when I saw him about two weeks ago. Uh, We email a little bit. You guys can email him, Jeb at Jeb.org. He has time now. I will. Um, And uh, he seems to be doing well.
1: That was Tim Miller, Jeb Bush's former communications director, who graciously opened up about life on the campaign trail with Jeb in 2016. We took Tim's advice, and we emailed Jeb at his email address, and he did get the email, but he declined an interview through another aide. Next week, we have famed women's reproductive rights advocate Sandra Fluke, who talks about what it was like to run for a state Senate seat in California, which, naturally, she lost. Otherwise, she wouldn't be on this podcast. A huge thanks, as always, to Christine Canetta, who edited this podcast. It wouldn't be the same without her. You can find Candidate Confessional on iTunes or on TheHuffingtonPost.com, and we encourage you to tell literally everybody. Complete Strangers, The Barista at Starbucks, tell them to subscribe to the show, rate it, and review it. Until next week, dear listener, happy trails.